May you this day be blessed. Hi there, I'm Sister Catherine Herms and thank you for joining me today as we explore the love that is the heart of the world and the work of the heart that helps us become this love and discover it in the world so that all the world becomes to us like the miraculous burning bush. We have been invisibly stamped with the signature, the seal of the God who bends over us with such tenderness. I call this work of the heart, heart work. Heart work exists because people realize they've come to a place in their life where they, they want spiritual direction. Maybe there are too many options, or maybe there seems to be no options at all. Perhaps they have new eyes to see, or perhaps they're longing for this new sight. Some have touched the sunrise within their soul and want more. Others are longing for this spiritual gift. Sometimes our hearts are filled with nagging questions that run like background music in our life. Do I matter to God? Does God see me? Does God hear me? Does God get what's happening to me and what it means? In heart work, we answer the essential question, who am I now in this situation of my life and in these relationships? To learn more about heart work and what God has led me to do in the world, or just to stay in touch, visit touchingthesunrise.com. As we journey into the new year, I've been thinking a lot about St. Joseph. He's a star in the Christmas narrative, leading Mary to Bethlehem for the census. He protected her on that blessed night when the Savior of the world was born in a stable in the midnight dark. Joseph stands out again as he saves the day, whisking Mary and Jesus off to Egypt and safely out of the clutches of Herod, who had attempted to kill the child. Perhaps from the perspective of our eternal reward, we too will see how we were the amazing actors in some moment of history, large or small, upon which the future of others rested. But as Joseph trudged away from Nazareth, I think he wasn't imagining himself in any saintly celebrity status. He was leaving his plans, his preparations for the Messiah's birth, his workshop, and his place in Nazareth as the village carpenter. He was leaving behind his family, his support, his home, his synagogue. He left everything he had known, built, and shared for so many years of his life. The self he knew, the role he played in the community, his place in the larger family. He walked into silence, mystery, glory as a humble, silent, trusting husband and foster father of the one who would be God with us forever. Like the census that suddenly upset Joseph's plans, you may be living through realities you cannot control. Realities that plunge you into a mystery with all of its uncertainty. I know I am. 
It is not just a pandemic, but personal situations in which Jesus mentors me in the humble stance of the central actors in salvation history. Take the little town of Bethlehem, forever immortalized as the birthplace of Jesus Christ. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Bethlehem was insignificant. It had no military or political power. It was the smallest, the youngest, the littlest of the clans of Judah. Jerusalem, the center of the religious cult of the Israelites, was only six miles away. Certainly, Joseph had gone up to Jerusalem often in his life to worship at the temple. It was not to Jerusalem, however, that he went with his wife so soon to be a mother. It was instead to insignificant Bethlehem, crowded, unready to receive so precious a treasure, sleepily unaware of the central place it inhabited there at the hinge of old and new. The miracles and mysteries of God come from just such mysteriously impossible places. The phrase, and she was barren, so often heard in the Old Testament, are really code words for God is about to do something impossible for his creatures to accomplish, something only God can do. And so Hannah gives birth to Samuel, and Elizabeth gives birth to John the Baptist. How can this be? Mary asked the angel while processing a message beyond comprehension. I do not know man. The response of the angel Gabriel points to how God takes the handmaids, those who have no personal agenda and power of their own, and constructs of their life a bridge to the next chapter of salvation history. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. I just have read the life of John Ryland, who lived between 1753 and 1825. John Ryland was a Protestant preacher who had an amazing gift for languages. He could read Hebrew by age four, and by age eight, he had translated the entire text of the Greek New Testament. Today, we'd call him a child prodigy, and his family fostered publicity and opportunities for their genius son. After several of the teenage Ryland's essays were published in the Gospel magazine, however, a man named John Newton sent him a letter. It was a letter that changed his life, the direction of his whole life. From a religious career that looked already that it was heading straight up, Ryland suddenly seemed to disappear from the public scene, returning eventually as a man marked by humility, insignificance, 
and yet having a profound influence on his times. How did Newton's letter precipitate this abrupt change of direction? Newton was a former slave ship captain who had arrogantly mocked Christianity in his own earlier days. But then he had been left behind in West Africa by his own crew. There he spent three years in bondage, sickness, and poverty. The mysterious journey that he was thrown into led to his profound conversion, and it instilled in him a stark suspicion of pride. In 1771, Newton read some of Ryland's articles and found them marked by a certain brashness. So he sent a letter to the young Ryland that contained a gentle censure along with an assurance of love for him and a desire for his success. Newton assured his young friend that with humility, he would have considerable usefulness for the gospel ministry. Addressing the teenager's articles that were published in the gospel magazine, he took direct aim at what threatened to wreck this young boy's ministry before it even got off the ground. And these are the words from this letter. You say, I have aimed to displease the Arminians. Now, the Arminians held certain views on salvation and grace that differed from Calvinism. Newton said, I had rather you would aim to be useful to them than to displease them. There are many Arminians who are so only for want of clear light. Now, these should not be displeased by our endeavoring to declare truth in the terms most offensive to them, which we can find, but rather we should seek out the softest and most winning way of encountering their prejudices. The doctrines of grace are humbling, that is, in their power and experience, but a man may hold them all in notion and still be very proud. He certainly is so if he thinks his assenting to them is a proof to his humility and despises others as proud and ignorant in comparison with himself. In another letter, he wrote, I hope your soul prospers. That is, I hope you are less and less in your own eyes and that your heart is more and more impressed with the sense of the glory and grace of our Lord. Your comfort and success eminently depend upon your being humble. And if the Lord loves you and has sent you, he will find ways and means to humble you. The teenage Ryland took Newton's advice to heart. He softened his tone and he left behind for good the upward path to ministerial celebrity. He published nothing for eight years, despite the fact that in 1776 alone, he preached more than 200 times. During his lifetime, 
He eventually pastored two of the most prominent Baptist churches in England, served as a college president and professor, founded two mission societies, and preached over 8,000 sermons in 286 different locations. In contrast to his father's more arrogant display of his accomplishments, Ryland wished to live instead the fruits of a heart that has been transformed by the gospel. He wished to live in gentleness, in humility and benevolence, and in the attention to the performance of duty. In the works of Robert Hall, we read that humility was the most remarkable feature of Ryland's character, and he might most truly be said in the language of scripture to be clothed with humility. In these difficult months, I have found myself reassured by the Lord that the small way, the constructive, gentle, humbling building of unity is the way of the gospel. The Joseph way of mystery, the central role of the insignificant in salvation history. The handmaid's role of obedience and open trust. Dorothy Day once wrote, if everyone were holy and handsome with altar Christus, I am another Christ, shining and neon lighting from them, it would certainly be easy to see Christ in everyone. If Mary had appeared in Bethlehem clothed with the sun, as we read in the book of Revelation, if she had a crown of 12 stars on her head and the moon under her feet, then people would have fought to make room for her. But that was not God's way for her. Nor is it Christ's way for himself now, when he is disguised under every type of humanity that treads the earth. And I would say, nor is it Christ's way for us, for the disciple is not greater than his master. Father Benedict Rochelle once said to us, we should be wary when they roll out the red carpet for us, for there was no red carpet in Bethlehem, nor on Calvary. May I learn from Mary, from Joseph, from prophetic people like Saints Dorothy Day and John Ryland to trust more in God. May you learn to trust more in God. We are being led in this year as the year ends on this mysterious journey into insignificance. It seems that down is up and up is down in the logic of the gospel, and that one day we will see that we were a central player somewhere in the drama of God's saving love for others. May I, may we, like Joseph, let go and not take the power back. May I, may we, like Joseph, let go and leave ourselves entirely into God's hands. Amen. Sometimes we can feel as though we were lost in a deep forest where no clear paths are visible. A blend of spiritual guidance, mentorship, and counseling, the Heartwork community is a place where you learn to explore, love, 
open and nourish the paradise of your heart, your deep heart, where God is already dwelling within you. You will discover that though you waited for light to appear from outside, the paths of light are imprinted in your heart where the Trinity abides, and we learn to walk them through the valleys and mountaintops of lived experience. Heartwork is a process of accompaniment that honors your story, creates a space in which you can safely explore what is happening with you, gain the tools to come home to your heart where the Trinity is already at work, be recreated by love, and set out again. To learn more about Heartwork and what God has led me to do in the world, or just to stay in touch, visit touchingthesunrise.com.